Right. So speaking with this is Dr. Jeffrey Walcott, a very good friend of mine from medical school, consultant, psychiatrist, and a good person, a resource, and somebody that I wanted to talk to about some issues that have been arising in my practice. And to get the ball rolling here, Fox, I, I really, as I alluded to in that message I sent you, the in terms of cannabis, and it's it's very topical now. My patient is going to kill me at my office with these questions about yeah. if, is there any issue with it as it pertains to, I'm speaking specifically to drug-induced psychosis. So I always tread lightly. Everybody must make their own decision. Everybody, I think, in their lives has to, if they want to try it, that's fine. They ask, they ask me these questions like, does it cause, does, can it basically make you crazy? Can it, what can it do? I give them some platitudes and I give them my limited information on the topic. But I say, I really and truly, people want to use it, in my opinion, as an excuse to really go. They want verification from me to go out and go smoke a pound of herb. I mean, that's all right. But I, can't, I have to give good medical advice too. I mean, if you're asking me a question, I said, well, my experience with the thing, quite frankly, I saw a lot of kids, I don't know if you remember when we just were rotating. Uh, Dr. Walcott is my classmate from medical school, by the way, he helped me pass my exams, one of the key people. Um, I have to say this, right? We I remember this, yeah, I remember, I remember this clear little fox that these guys, one and two of them, they were young men, particularly men, and literally one, maybe one, one spliff tail, maybe two. So I just ask him from uh, where, the, where does the evidence, what does what the evidence point as it pertains to that? And, and right. as in the, 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 any, any, any kind of information you can give us, much appreciated. Right. Well, 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 cannabis has always been a very strong part of our history and our culture, right? Oh. And we are now in the realm of medicinal marijuana, medicinal cannabis use. And, but a lot of people misconstrue that. When we talk about medicinal cannabis, we're talking about CBD. Marijuana, the plant, has over 400 chemicals. The, the most per, um, potent of which is a THC, which is a psychoactive component, right? THC is a psychedelic. It's a hallucinogen by ca categorization and by um, characteristic. But the problem that most people don't recognize is that when you actually smoke marijuana, you're actually taking it a very small dose of THC, microdose. You're taking a much larger dose when you do edibles. And what, you're, what we tend to see is that people who come in with an acute psychotic episode, and marijuana-induced issues tend to be very, very unique. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of paranoia, and a lot of tactile hallucinations. So people will come in stripping off their clothes, climbing on the wall, and we've seen a few of those. And it's in persons who have ingested large quantities of edibles because the dosing in edibles is about a thousand times more than when you smoke it. The issue with smoking the THC or smoking the regular plant and, and people talk about the lizard tail effect. Marijuana takes a long time to be metabolized and excreted from the body. In fact, you can have marijuana in the body up to as long as six weeks after you take it. And so if you think about an excretion rate of six weeks and someone who's smoking three, four, five splits a day, there comes a point where the cumulative effect pushes you over to the same point as if you were eating or, or in, taking the edible. And it is, a psycho, it is a psychedelic by nature. So it will cause perceptual um, changes, hallucinations, paranoia. And in some very specific group of people who are predisposed to having psychiatric problems, in particular schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, cannabis can in fact induce a, or, or trigger this particular illness in that susceptible group of people. So it's not without risk. Does it have benefits? To some degree. Cannabis, in essence, is very good in terms of use, things like um, vomiting, pain regulation. Mm -hmm. There have been some reports on the use in seizure disorders where it has been successful or useful, but it's, it's one of the, the areas where the most evident lies is with the use in terms of 
um, for persons who are on antineoplastic agents or cancer drugs and dealing with the, the, the side effects of those, which it does in fact have a significant effect. For psychiatric purposes, we have seen the usage of um, the psychedelics in general uh, come on board with people who are suffering from PTSD, cannabis and no um, psilocybin um, mushrooms, yes. which I also do therapy using psilocybin. Um, psilocybin is a little cleaner because the effects is very time bound. It only lasts for four to five hours. And afterwards it comes up in your system, whereas THC is variable and can remain in your system for as much as six to eight weeks. So the issue is with any form of recreational drugs, the medical recommendation is no, don't use it. In terms of medicinal use of cannabis, the medicinal use is with CBD, which is not psychoactive. And CBD has anxiolytic effects. It has the anti-emetic effects. It has the pain relief effects. That one I can tell you for sure. Um, and so it is very useful for persons who are looking for naturopathic medication, who don't want to necessarily be taking NSAIDs or pain or who have chronic pain and, and want some relief that, that they feel is more natural and, and safer. Um, but in terms of the issue of it being superior to any of the pharmaceutical agents there for any of these particular areas, that has not been proven. There have been anecdotal reports, especially for seizure disorders, that cannabis has been shown to be more effective. Um, but again, those are anecdotal reports and there are no RCT trials to support those claims. Right. Well, you said a lot there, including, it sounds like you've tried CBDs. I've tried it myself, the non-THC yeah. version of the cannabis. And you myself, I did see a difference. I think it was actually, it could have been a topical I was given actually, and I said I would try it. But uh, I really, I, and I was impressed. And of course, you know, my grandmother was a big practitioner, <laughs> for lack of better words, of she used to do this thing where she cures the rum with the cannabis and you rub it on your body for, of course, you know, yeah. for pain and these sorts of things. That was that, that is very me. important. Or something else. Your picture just went. But I, in terms of the psychosis or psychotic episodes, uh, well, well, you, you, I think you, what you've outlined is quite clear. In, just for my edification, the the if you take I don't know if there there's any study that speaks to this. So if you take a hundred people and a hundred of them smoke, how much of them would actually develop that drug-induced psychosis, or do do they have any trials that speak to that? Or this is just uh, this is overly medical, but forgive me. I, just no, to... I know, I know, and 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 that's the critical point or, or problem because what we've recognized is that of the persons who have psychosis or who have schizophrenia right. the percentage of them that actually smoke is is large but when you look at the jamaican population on a whole the prevalence of psychotic disorders is no greater than any other country where the use of marijuana is less and so it is a very complicated thing so there is no causal relationship I but see. there is a correlation right. um in the same way that there's no causal relationship between cigarette smoking and cancer, but there is a correlation. I see, I see, I see. But it's, right. it's hard, it's hard to pinpoint causation. But what we can tell it is that, especially in dose-related amounts, for the edibles specifically, the edibles can cause a psychedelic effect of the cannabis, which is a psychotic state. So the larger the volume you, you mm -hmm. take, the more likely it is for you to get the psychedelic effect. And so that looks like a psychosis and it usually um, goes away after a few days. Um, but in that scenario, in that case, it is dependent on the individual because things like body mass index, uh, fat distribution, mm -hmm. genetics, all of that, it causes the, 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 the excretion and, and breakdown of cannabis in the body to vary widely within the population. So we can't predict how long that psychosis state will last. In most persons, it could be three days, but it could be three weeks or three months. And in some people, especially those that have a predisposition, that might be the straw that broke the camel's back. So it's always important to take these things with, that, with, that, with caution. I see. So you also mentioned the psilocybin, which is a lot of 
information, excitement. It's a, a sort of, it seems to be very popular, especially these famous people have been taking it. Medically, is there evidence that points to, as you said, you're using it in your practice, you seem to be happier with it than a cannabis. You, is there, is there the medical information in favor of its use, depending on the case? Or? So what has been happening, especially with, with the psychedelics in particular, is that a lot of robust studies have been do, done and they have been coming out. There have been some systematic reviews. There have been a few randomized control trials that show that it is impactful in treatment of things like depression, PTSD, alcohol abuse or alcohol dependency in particular, to some degree in cocaine, cigarettes are dependency, and in, in a few patients who have severe refractory depression. Um, in fact, the pharmaceutical companies have just launched the, the esketamine, which is, a, which is a, a, a version of ketamine, which is another psychedelic um, in the use for refractory depression. So we recognize that there is value in using the psychedelics in particular. The reason why the, the, the psilocybin is a little bit more cleaner is because of the sh very confined action, window action, window, window of, of, of action. It's only four to five hours in most instances, but you have to be screened to ensure that you are not predisposed to psychosis. You don't have a family history of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, or you've never had a psychotic episode. Because again, as with all psychedelics, if you are predisposed to having a psychotic phenomenon, they can actually, because how they work is putting you through a psychotic state. When you go through the psychedelic trip of four to five hours, you will be hallucinating. You will be having a break from, from perceptual reality. And so it is best done in a controlled setting. There are persons who microdose, but the reality is, as we know from biology, is that microdose for one person may not be microdose for the next. And, and we don't have any, any rigid empirical evidence to support what the dosage regime is like and how people respond to different dosage dosages. So it's always best to be done in a somewhat supervised environment. It can be done in a medical or clinical environment. Certainly at my office, we provide that, that, that facility for a few hours, or it can be done with someone who has exposure or experience in dealing with um, what they call sitting, babysitting persons who go through the experience, or it can be done with somebody who is connected with the spiritual aspect of it like a shaman, and, and we do have persons here who have gone to uh, South America who have learned the techniques of shamanism and can help you to, to take that journey when we go through the trip. I currently work with one group that does just that, the um, Pak Shamana group, and, and we found that the collaboration works really well, where they go through that spiritual journey with the, the full trip, and then we do the psychotherapeutic work at the end. Excellent. That the Black Shamana group, I must admit, I've never heard of them. They typically... I'll send you the Instagram link. Right. <laughs> you need to. Because, as I said, we are all just trying to help patients here. I said, I really, I always encourage people to come and speak to people like you. And there is a, well, this is an interesting segue, but there seems to be a stigma attached to your profession. And I can remember. <laughs> which I don't know if you remember this, when Freddie Hicklin, the late great Freddie Hicklin was teaching us, I basically stood up in the class and told him, I never thought the profession was worthwhile. And the irony is this, I, it is probably the most worthwhile profession in my opinion, or aspect of our profession, I should say, or specialty or discipline, because the amount of what is happening here today, a lot could be solved in my view, by a little bit of psychotherapy, a little bit of relaxation yeah. a little bit of some of your basic techniques just to take just to really remove stress and i'm really i'm very impressed with the mind and these issues that i see even pop up in me at my practice every day you know i to further talk about the psilocybin i hope i'm pronouncing this right the ayahuasca that ayahuasca that, yes right now that is is that usage again this is another again this is all just from me being a human being on youtube i noticed that it's a lot of popular i guess my content because it's curated is a lot of medical stuff but is that i noticed that there was one gentleman speaking about and he was speaking about depressions and he was on paxil at 
I think it could be the upper dose of Paxil he was on. And he said that he went through this thing. He did a couple of these things and he was crying and doing all of this. These ayahuasca trips, for lack of better words. And it essentially, after he went through that, he has no longer, he's never felt that way before. So depressed or sad and it has helped him immensely. So I was wondering if you have any experience or any thoughts on, on that as no. well. Well, well, it's the same with this, with this, all the psychedelics work in it's pretty the same much the same way. Um, and I have had patients who have gone through one or two trips and they have not needed any further antidepressant treatment. However, that's not always the case. Um, and I think what is, what is most important is for persons who have refractory, because I had one patient who has refractory, very fractured depression, was not responding to the medication. Mm -hmm. And we use the psychedelics in her to actually get a response. And then we use the antidepressants to ensure that she's maintained and to keep her because it took so long for her to get a response. But there's a lot of research now in the biochemistry of how these um, substances work. Uh, there's a lot of information about how it affects particular um, BDNF factor, which stimulates brain growth and brain cell development. And also the areas of the brain that are affected through imaging studies are the areas, it suppresses the areas that generate so-called negative affective thinking, the areas that cause rumination that you see get that, that, that light up when you have things like OCD and when you have things like generalized anxiety, it suppresses those areas of the brain and it, it causes a increase in the level of some of your feel-good hormones. Not dopamine, but oxytocin and serotonin. And the reason why not dopamine because the dopamine pathway is a pathway to addiction. And most of the psychedelics, well, especially the psilocybin, has been shown to have a low addictive potential. Certainly when you go through a full trip, you, 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 are, you don't have a desire to use it anytime soon. Um, and it, it's a very intriguing and interesting thing. Right. I, I really, I noticed that in addition that people actually pay to have these, these trips, basically, they go, this, this is a... Yeah. aspect of tourism now in South America is a very well it's also here um but I see. we're not so they have recreational trips somewhere in the because surprisingly the substance has never been illegal in this country oh, it's completely I illegal I see I see and so a lot of a lot of, of enterprises are taking advantage of that however we in the clinical realm are more focused on the therapeutic benefit that most of our patients can get through it um, and, and it's a big thing with a lot of the Fortune 500 guys because it, it leaves you with a, with a sense of clarity and, and a, a, a way the end result of the trip or of the experience is, is, a, is a new way of thinking, more connective way of thinking that, that they have thought gives them a new perspective on life and gives them an edge over whatever they, they're hoping to achieve. So it's a very intriguing substance, but the research is still early. And we are just now seeing a lot of the evidence-based uh, material coming out. Um, and both evidence, empirical studies, as well as clinical practice has shown that it can be useful. I think the response rate I've had is similar to what is found internationally. It's about 60 to 70% of patients respond and respond well. And you have 30 or 40% that don't. There's a 10% a of persons who have a bad dysphoric experience but I found that even with those that go through the dysphoric experience, they still gain some benefit at the end with the psychotherapeutic um, assistance. So it's kind of, it's, it's very useful. And but as we go back to one thing that you mentioned about the patients in your clinic, so part of the issue is from our standpoint now is to keep the patients with depression in, in your office because mm -hmm. WHO and most of the, 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 world, the health organizations have recognized that things like depression and anxiety really should be primary care mm. focus because that's where the, 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 the ask, access to care is. And for our country in particular, yeah. what we found, because uh, Professor Gibson and I did a paper on knowledge, attitude, and practice. Physicians trained in our system tend to be more, first of all, they tend to be more comfortable in terms of engaging with and treating depression, and they tend to show more competency and persons um, trained elsewhere. So we already have that aspect. And we, we are recognizing and focusing that for us to access these patients, 
the majority of depressive patients will never come to the psychiatrist. And when you look at depression, the prevalence rate is 10%. So of a population of three, almost 3 million people, you're looking at 300,000 people who have some form of depressive disorder. Wow. Our entire public health sector can barely manage 100,000 persons with all mental disorders. So we will never be able to manage 300,000 people just with depression. But we have enough general practitioners, we have enough primary care physicians where we can make a dent if they are properly um, empowered and they are given the appropriate tools. And I've worked on training program both in the private sector mm. with a pharmaceutical company to train primary care physicians in recognizing and managing depression, as well with the public sector and the WHO mandate to train the, the, the persons in public health to be able to recognize and implement treatment for depression without having to go to the psychiatrist. And a lot of the, the, the fears that most of our colleagues have about the depression issue and managing it are things like um, uh, causing a manic episode. But for us, causing a manic episode is not something that we worry about because the, the truth is the manic episode would have come out anyway for the person who's bipolar. And the earlier it came out, the easier it is to manage it. In fact, the, the concept of more of a bipolar three disorder is taken out of the DSM completely. So it's it's very rare that you're gonna get somebody who is depressed who goes into mania, but it's very common for you to see somebody who has unipolar depression that needs urgent treatment because you also recognize that depression changes brain anatomy over time. And the longer people suffer with depression, the more difficult it is to get a response in later years. And persons who've had depressive symptoms of five or 10 years, the actual response rate goes down to as low as 1%. And that's why a lot of these new pharmaceutical approaches using psychedelics, using all of these things have come into play because a lot of the patients are suffering and the suffering is intractable and we cannot use conventional means to get to it. So we have to, it's a, it's a disorder that we have to recognize early and treat aggressively to prevent local bone damage. Yeah, it, it's really and truly what it boils down to is fear on my part. Let me talk about me. Trust me. I really, when I sit down, I say, Lord, I don't want to mess this up. That's really, I just don't want to, you alluded to it. I just don't want to seem incompetent. I really, and on this note, I was just wondering if you, I know we're taught that the, the generics are basically equivalent to the brands. But when I get something like Paxil, I get, you know, we'll get Paxil samples brand. I just wonder if you, even in your practice, have seen any difference because Paxitine is so much more affordable, as I understand it. That's a generic to Paxil. Have you seen any great difference in any of these, any of these common ones uh, that we Not would really. use? So it, it's really. really like any other medical practice then, nothing to worry it about. It is, and, and the, it's the thing that you worry about. So, so what, there's, a old, there's, a, there's a long-standing psychiatric joke, right? Because mm. when we're treating depression, we're using MAOIs. Yes. And MAOIs, the only thing you could have the patient eat or drink is water from a glass jar because if they eat anything else, they will drop down dead. <laughs> but the SSRIs and the, and the newer medication are so safe and the only way that the patient will can die from them is if the truck delivering them hits the patient. Because a lot of <laughs> a lot of these medications have a high level of tolerance. And so it is it is the, the, the side effect profiles are pretty tolerable. So and Paxil is one of the older generations, like SR. Yeah. But now you have your agents like the SNRIs, SDRIs, mm -hmm. and the agolomelatine um, derivatives, all of which are well toler uh, well tolerated by patients. But one of the things that used to always trip up the, 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 the prim, primary care physician yes. GPs is that when you put the patient on the antidepressant, no matter what antidepressant it is, in the first week, the patient is not going to see any improvement. And in fact, if the patient has anxiety symptoms, you might see a worse thing of the anxiety symptoms. And during that time, that is when you, you supplement the antidepressant with a benzodiazepine, which is the only time you should be using a benzodiazepine with the patient for the first four to five days to help take that edge off. All the antidepressants, the clinical effects occur after seven to 14 days with optimization at 21 days. And so it's important when you, for us, if we have to drill it in our patients, say, look here, you're gonna take the pill, you're not gonna feel any better. But for the first four days, they might even feel worse. 
But if you keep on it, you will, in fact, get better. And another thing that's important, which is what we try to drill in, exercise has been proven empirically to be as effective as reducing depression scores as antidepressants for persons with mild and moderate depression. That's 45 minutes of physical exercise every day, and that could be just walking for 30 to 45 minutes, is as effective and as the, the, the best pharmaceutical agent in reducing depressive symptoms in patients who have mild to moderate depression. So some of these things are important and getting your patients to understand how to take care of themselves because a lot of people don't want to be on medication, but at the same time, they are not willing to do anything at all to address their depressive symptoms. And depression, exercise doesn't work because depression is, is easy to deal with. You know? Exercise works because continuous exercise increases endorphin production, which mm -hmm. is a chemical that combats the, the, if the, the sadness and the low, ser it enhances serotonin activity, enhances um, oxytocin levels, enhances dopamine levels. So it's it's chemical that you're you're doing reversing the sadness because people with depression have real physical symptoms and signs: sleep disturbance, appetite disturbance, yeah. weight loss, lethargy, um, low movement, psychomotor retardation. And the negative thinking, those are real physical symptoms that are occurring because there's chemical disruptions within that setup. And the, 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 the emotion, the, the, the chemicals that they need to have an experience, a, a positive emotion is suppressed. And so you have to do whatever is necessary to accentuate that, that um, neurotransmitter effect and put that chemical back to where it's supposed to be. So it can either be through drugs and exercise or better yet, through both. And so mm -hmm. get the patients to follow through on the antidepressants. And a lot of the antidepressants are, will move away from the tricyclics you have to worry about. Majority of them, the side effect profile is mild to none. Most side effects that they have is nausea and vomiting and GI upset with some of the things. And even if you start a patient and the patient ends up being, or starting to show a manic episode, all you do is that you just throw on some quetiapine. It's an atypical antipsychotic, mm -hmm. which itself, can be used in unipolar depression, anxiety. It can be used in anything. So a lot of these drugs are very safe to use and you can use them in your practice, monitor the patients sufficiently and get the patient to respond. You said that you're mentioning that the benzodiazepines nowadays are not really supposed to be used in general or because you know that thing we do where we give it basically, I give it as a sleep aid. But I tell them, I instruct them that this to me, this is really anxiety medication. What does that mean? It's for stress. Now, what it's supposed to do, what I have in mind is going to put you in a good mood to sleep. It's not for sleeping because, you know, the uh, what's it called? Ambient is so expensive and then it's hardly ever here in my, whenever I write it, I know, nobody can get it. And then they have, they have the dose that the ambient people say 12.5 yeah, and it can't be cut. I say, well, what if I want a lower dose? Well, they're going to have to take it. <laughs> it's a very, so I don't so, tend to, so, they, so these people, you know, people come to me with insomnia and I don't know, I really, remember they're looking at me and I don't, I look around, I always see me in my office. I say, well, this is what, and you know, this thing they used to do at the clinics that they still do, which it looked like it's hard to get now, amitriptyline. It's right, amitriptyline, out the wazoo for these people and some of these people do well and my fear is that they are actually depressed people that's yeah. why they were doing well but in terms yeah. of the sleep you take it and you get drowsy out you know then you develop that tolerance then you start double it you start triple it then you come to me you now and then i'm going um, um maybe you need to say dr walcott <laughs> so so what's interesting is that I actually have a presentation. I'm presenting at the Emerger conference coming up. Mm. Um, and I'm presenting on the appropriate use of, of Alprazolam, Xanax, which is mm. something that most people love. The recommended use of Xanax you know, is a two-week schedule where you start at 0.25 and you titrate up to a maximum of one milligram or 1.5 milligram. So within three to four days, you titrate up. And then after four days, you titrate down. So the total in total time period for you to be on a Xanax is two weeks. Wow. If after that, your patient is still having problems with sleep and with anxiety, 
Then you have to think about whether a patient is experiencing a depressive episode, and that can be followed up by a simple screening for depression. Right. So let me say yes. So once you you've done the the, the sleep aid with the patient, and the patient after two weeks of the danger is still telling that they're not sleeping well or they're having difficulty, and yes, it worked while they were on it, but once they come off, they're having problems. Then you have to look and see whether or not there's something else there. More than likely, most common thing is that the patient is depressed. But not all the time can you ask, are you feeling sad? And the patient will say yes. Because in fact, you can't and I about sadness. Mm -hmm. The patient should not be enjoying life. But the most critical thing that you have to look for are things like motivation to do work, energy level to do work. Because a lot of the times what tends to happen is that people don't necessarily are able to, to describe your emotion, but they can describe this overwhelming feeling of and once you've made sure that they're not anemic or they're not having any thyroid issue, the common cause of that is the emotional and psychological strain that you get from a depressive disorder. And at that point in time, now you can discuss with the patient about starting on an antidepressant. Um, and there are wealth of them there. The tricyclics are the older generation cheaper, but they have the SSRIs, and as I said, the SNRIs and the SDRIs and the, even the agolomerity now are equally effective, but they are, have shown improvement in tolerability. The antidepressants, their efficacy has not really changed over the, the different classes, but the tolerability certainly has. And so the newer agents are far more tolerable in the patient and some of the things like a tricyclic or, or like even an SSRI, because so, some cases you now you have medication that don't have the sexual side effects, even though some of your male patients do look forward to it. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Quite yeah. right. Okay, yeah, and trouble. surgery is a, is a big, um, yes. very popular with the men these days. Yes. Right? Um, and so you have to think about that, that aspect and the anxiety. And while you're also using the benzodiazepine, it's important to also get the patient to practice proper sleep hygiene. Because people will tell you, yes, oh, doctor can't sleep, but every night they, they, the TV watches them while they, while they try to sleep and they go to bed at two, three o'clock in the morning, or they eat a late night snack and they wonder why they can't sleep because they're having so much burn or the alcohol or any other drug that they're on. So it's important to also guide them through proper sleep hygiene. And, and, and once all of those are in place and they're still complaining, then it's likely that there's some psychiatric issues that that's fueling them. Oh, I see. So, you you based on what you're saying, uh, insomnia in and of itself is actually a very rare occurrence. Just unilateral, it, for lack of better words, insomnia. So very, you would say it's an uncommon thing. I don't want to misrepresent what you. It's no, it is uncommon. So there are two primary causes. One is poor sleep hygiene. So people who spend all night on TikTok or spend right. all night on thing and then go to bed at 12 o'clock and say that they're not sleeping well because then they wake up tired. But the more common issue is that there is underlying mental oh. depression in particular that goes that goes undetected and that it's the depression that is causing the sleep problem. Particularly if the patient complains of what we call middle insomnia. Uh, middle insomnia is a telltale sign for depression. When they go to bed, but they get up in the middle of the night and then have difficulty going back to bed. That's yeah. usually a telltale sign for depressive symptoms. For anxiety, patients have difficulty getting to sleep and they're anxious and nervous. And so it takes a long while for them to sleep. But usually when you're having depressive disorders, the sleep pattern changes very specifically. It is go to bed, wake up in the middle of the night, can't go back to sleep or pass on to it. So the sleep is interrupted. And that's usually telltale for depression. So the use of ambient, then you would say that that you even you in your practice you hardly use it, or you very rarely. Well, I, I use I use the, the the sleep aids quite a lot. I use them in the introduction of antidepressants. So oh. if I have a patient who I know has depression, who has sleep problems, I will in the first week I will cover that patient with an ambient, even with an alprazolam, and do the titrated doses so that by the time the, the benzodiazepines or the sleep aids are, are on board and coming off, the efficacy of the antidepressants will be picking it up. 
Because remember, the antidepressants are not going to cause any clinical relief until about 14 days' time. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to get the patient to feel better to some degree immediately for them to continue taking the medication. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very, well, uh, concerned, even though I know it's so, but the habit-forming aspect of it, it's really... I get badgered for it a lot. That's it. This is talking about the benzodiazepines. More so, I would say, the Alpras and the, this uh, pharmacist is Zopiclone. They seem to like that one a lot. Uh, I'm not sure why. So uh, it's really, I have some people I have to be hiding from because they want like six months of it. And it's a lot. Uh, and I noticed that I don't know if. <laughs> I know they, we're in a challenging time financially, but they, I don't get out of calls if I write. I used to write 10 days on go, but when I write the more than 10 days in the past, we'd get out of calls about it. I, I, know, the, I know the concern about the addiction issue, but the truth of the fact is that most people who are going to become addicted mm. would have become addicted to something irrespective. So they have oh, habit-forming behavioral patterns, and they will become addicted no matter what. Mm. But it's important for for your patients who are on looking for sleep relief, for them to understand. And most of them will comply when you tell them that if you take it for like two weeks and you're not sleeping, then come back and there's something there. You will have habit um, dependent patients who are coming for it. And the one time I got called for a Xanax prescription was when I wrote five milligrams in divided doses over one day for three months for a patient. And the pharmacist called me to ask, what am I treating? And I said very clearly, alprazolam addiction. Because here's a caveat to that. The only thing I can treat on alprazolam addiction is alprazolam. And it starts by, first of all, stabilizing the patient's daily dosage. And then gradually, over a period of months, reducing the patient's daily dosage by about 25% over a three to four day period each time until that patient is able to tolerate being off the medication. Because if you stop that patient cold turkey, the risk of seizures on this is very high. So it is pointless. So when you so you have to put everything in perspective, because the truth of the matter is the patients who are addiction is thought to be a behavioral disorder. It's not so much a social. You have people who are, I don't want to say frivolous, but people who are occasional cocaine users and you have people who are habitual cocaine users it's not the cocaine that's the issue it is the type of personality that is mixed with the drugs you have people who are social drinkers people who are habitual drinkers so it, the addiction itself is not so much the characteristic of the substance but it is the character of the person and in those cases a lot of those persons have other problems that they're going to come to you with and what you can recognize especially if they have issues with conflict a lot of psychosexual issues, those persons may have actually personality disorders and they're the ones that need to be referred to us because their management is now going to be very complicated. Patients with manipulative tendencies, lying, deception, things like that. Once you recognize those conflicts, it's important to refer them, especially if they are using the, the benzodiazepine in large doses. So the truth is what they need is psychosocial intervention to help temper their impulsive need and their habit-forming behavior. So stopping them from the drug is not going to make a difference. I see. And this is very interesting for me, of course. And I keep thanking about that. Thank you again. We are very busy. I wanted to just touch on because, again, then we're murdering my office about this, this COVID. And basically, your thoughts on, well, can go to your area, but You've been a, a very astute, a very bright doctor. You think, how you think have we done and how are we doing as it pertains to COVID? And in your area, I note that I've had a few patients that complain of, which is probably not directly related to psychiatry, that brain fog with a quote-unquote long COVID. I don't know if, I don't know if it really ties to your area, but I do see enough people with that, even in my little situation, that I am just wondering if there's anything we can do about it, it or any thoughts. Yeah. So it absolutely is, and it absolutely does. And more than, more in, in 
in um, tandem with the brain fog is the intense lethargy, the low energy and the drainage because the, so COVID has been shown globally because we're just having data crunching every minute. 30% of persons who have had the infection will present with psychiatric manifestation, whether it's depression, anxiety, or even psychosis. I've been seeing a lot of, of atypical psychotic presentations. People who present with psychosis that then transform into obsessive compulsive disorder, or people who present with psychosis that transform into depression or vice versa. And it's very complicated. One of the things that I found works well with the brain fog issue is a vitamin D derivative called Arcalion, which is which is oh, usually yeah. used for akathisia, yeah. uh, not akathisia, asthenia and low energy state. I've had patients that have responded very well to it uh, over the month. Um, I put them on one month supply and tell them to exercise as much as they can, and they usually get it. But the issue with COVID is the long-term effect is completely unknown because we have not been long-term out of the pandemic. And I think that's what most people do not get and understand. And as the virus evolves, which it inevitably does, it is going to be in the background because the, the actual mortality rate is going to, to, to shrink down as it becomes less and less virulent, but it becomes more and more infectious. So we are going to be seeing not as much death, but we're still going to see a lot of the peculiar sequelae of the illness evolving in the population. Because remember, the infection has not gone anywhere. Now. And I think we're supposed to be in the fifth phase or sixth phase or whatever phase right now. Mm -hmm. So the, and, and when you look at previous pandemics, like the Spanish flu from the 18, 1918, Spanish flu is still around and alive quite well, except now most of the population has some level of immunity. So the mortality rate is not down, but the morbidity impact is still very much significant. And similarly, what we see with COVID, the peculiar thing about COVID is that the large percentage of people that have long-term effects from the infection. So the morbidity issues are going to be impacting us. As to how well we have done with the pandemic in terms of a public health standpoint, the reality is this, and I've said it all the time, that the primary, the primary um, patient that you're looking to protect in any pandemic is the healthcare service. That is the primary patient. You have to ensure that the healthcare service does not crash. When we saw the huge death rates in Spain and huge death rates all over Europe, it was because their healthcare services were overwhelmed. And so the issue of the barrier and the control of spread really overwhelmed the healthcare system. And then everybody was dying. COVID patients were dying and everybody else was dying. So you saw that huge spike in death rate because all the vulnerable people got you know, down. We haven't done too badly because in the first wave, especially, we're able to minimize spread where the spread was contained for us for a long period of time. However, we should have utilized that time period to expand out the healthcare services. I don't think that was done sufficiently, but to some degree it was. But we have never actually exceeded in most instances the healthcare sector. But again, a lot of that is due to our healthcare sector is used to operating at 120, 100%. So we are used to operating at the big But most of the healthcare system very well in terms of how they manage to keep the, the, the pandemic contained. And a lot of the policies, as much as we disagree with them for whatever reason, but the truth is, a lot of the policies that made sense were actually impacting, limiting spread, containing uh, the, the, the caseload so that we did not have an overwhelming of the healthcare services. And they were, in fact, well-grounded. So I think we did better than most countries in terms of our approach to the, the pandemic. And given our socioeconomic stature and our socioeconomic background and our socioeconomic um, situation, I think we had a very balanced approach. So I do, I do think that they did very well. Um, especially rolling out the vaccination. The important thing to recognize is that there was a huge focus on the most vulnerable. And I think that is where the most critical thing is. We have 2.9 million people in the population, but the average Jamaica's median age is somewhere around 34. So we're, we're a pretty young population. Mm -hmm. So we have to ensure that the most vulnerable and the statistics show 60 and over, that's where the most vulnerability lies and our diabetics and hypertension, hypertension. So I think a lot of the focus of getting those vulnerable people vaccinated early, effectively, which is why we've seen a reduction in our death rate. And our death rate was 
actually below the world average until about the third, the third, um, wave it was the third the... wave. Yeah. That our death rate kind of went up to okay. the roof. But okay. before that, we were doing fairly well. We were always below the world average. So I think we, we did something went a little awry. Either we got a strain that was was a little bit more deadly. But before that time, we we're still doing fairly well. And even though our death rate is still um, okay. somewhere around the average. Right. I, I, I think I agree with you, Fox, that definitely things could have been better. I certainly working in the field and you know even though we don't have direct contact you know we have friends in icu and would see all this object these people just passing away around it's a very heart-rending thing it's a very challenging thing just to hear that you know people that are removed from it sort of don't get it even now i would say with all respect and some of what was done i just really and i this is just me my just maybe it's a, my wrong perception i just thought that some of the marketing money could have been spent on actually as you say improving healthcare i mean there's a lot it's a big marketing spend it's a real good and you know the, it it really was well tried it they, they pushed out this campaign and people just went gave us a shrug like okay you know and but but you're right the intent intent is is i think intent is really the key here and they had very good intentions with that but they and it's uh, this business of hindsight is really what can you do <laughs> you look at it now and say you know boy here's the thing and i think part of the problem was the, the either the nature of the vaccines that we went with first yeah. That require these very stringent cold chain um, transportation issues. But if we had gone with practical vaccines that didn't require the particular storage issues, we have probably one of the best vaccination systems and structures in the island. Our infant vaccination rate is, is, is has always been very high, and most of our health centers are equipped in the small communities to access the population and to actually roll out these vaccines. So. I think that had we gotten the proper match, and I agree with you, instead of the PR, we should have done the, 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 what is proven. In other words, focus on the health centers. And, because we have very, very effective public health system. We have, we have home visits in these communities where we have people that go in for, for antenatal care. And so we have the, the structure in the health center where we could have had each health center reach their population quickly, effectively, and administer vaccines in a more, more effective manner than to do these huge... And, and, and if you've been to some of these vaccines, because it took me three days to get my vaccine, because I went to, to one of the centers, and I was looking at it, I said, are we getting the vaccine or COVID? Because I see thousands of people. This makes no sense. And I had to leave, and I went back, and... and, and Thank goodness for a dear friend of mine who was telling me that there was one area, I, I think it was Girl Guides. And I, I have to, a lot of the, these NGOs and organizing associations actually played a huge role in being yeah. able to get people vaccinated. And I'm saying that these, this is the system that we had, the, the, the pump and pageantry at these large venues, I don't think was, was warranted. And I don't think the PR issue was also warranted. I mean, I agree, we should have spent more money on just getting vaccines for the child that all other vaccines have gotten through because it has been shown that we can get a vaccination program done really quickly exactly exactly and i think i'm going to so i'm going to let you go shortly fox but i just wanted to wrap up by asking some things that you alluded to for example you said exercise because i get asked what can i do that is not taking a pill to help them with in your your field mental health issues you alluded to some of it in terms of anxiety and insomnia you can just practice good sleep hygiene which yeah. really literally is just going with a routine dark in the area light some people light a candle say a prayer whatever it is and also exercise which i did not know so i thank you for that but is there any other thing in your area any general advice that you can give people you know we tell 
I think he's saying Freddie Hicklin told us the treatment of stress is to remove the stress. Anyway, so I, I, I was just saying that any other of these, but I get asked this specifically a lot, anything natural yes. or but, without medication? Yes, you haven't actually gone the field because you hit it right on the head. Social interaction is one yes. of the most important things in good mental health. Right. Connecting to people, connecting to others, interacting with friends, interacting with people. It's a very critical part of mental wellness and, and resiliency because just mere mm. engaging with people helps you to, one, unburden or, or, or get rid of some of the emotional and psychological stress that you go through. And the connection can actually give you practical solutions by getting a divergent view on your perspective of particular problems. And in most instances, it's just a lot of fun and fun Dopamine is very important for regulating healthy emotions and a healthy sense of self, despite the other drugs that stimulate dopamine, which will guide you away from. Right. But social interaction, so exercise, fighting, social interaction, and self-care. A lot of people do not understand what self-care means. And they, they, they think that self-care is some wayward thing that you do in a mountain top with a white sheet and, and something. But self-care is about understanding that once a, once a week or for a short time, there has to be protected you time where you indulge in activities that are interesting, hobbies that you like doing, things that you enjoy doing, whether it's by yourself or with a small group, and that you have to reward yourself on a consistent basis throughout your time, whether it's once a week or a little five or 15 minutes a day, but you have to provide a reward to yourself for you to feel refreshed. And it helps you to deal with difficult situations, difficult problems, and it helps you to do everything because you are focusing on that little time about getting your energies back. So self-care is important. And then there's a whole field now on the practice of mindfulness, which is the same thing, which is learning how to, how to be present in the present moment, not reflecting about what problems you're going to face 10 years online or 20 years online or whatever, but just focusing on what do you have to be happy for today, what do you enjoy, what do you have to do, what do you have to focus on, and only focus on the step in front, one step at a time. And that's pretty much most of the therapeutic techniques. Excellent. Well, I thank you, sir. Time's a million.